Welcome to Sweathead with Mike Pollard. I have Bennett D. Bennett, who is a staff writer at The Drum and has worked in some of your favorite ad agencies in New York as a copywriter. Welcome, Bennett D. Bennett. Thanks for having me, Mark. And man, I love talking to people who've worked inside the agency world and then who are outside but still around because you get to observe all sorts of different angles. And as a writer or as a journalist, you are on the receiving end of a lot of pitches as well. And so, you know, easy question to start with. What's going on out there? Uh, too, too much is going on out there. Uh, so I cover agencies and the media for the drum. Uh, so a lot of stuff from my old life, ad agency world, uh, creative agencies, digital agencies, social media agencies, but also just about any sort of media platform you can think of. So obviously uh, television, magazines, radio, social media, uh, new and emerging platforms. Uh, so, you know, by nature of my role, I get a lot coming in. Uh, but there are a couple of major things going on in, in my estimation. On the agency side, we're still seeing the fallout from Sir Martin Sorrell's exit from WPP. Uh, and we're definitely going to be seeing a lot of uh, shockwaves in the coming months from that, whether it's within WPP itself or within the lasting legacy of, of Sorrell, which, uh, you know, years ago he broke the traditional agency model and split up, you know, ad agencies and media agencies into, into separate things. And everybody's kind of done that now, but we're starting to see a lot of consolidation within those media, within those media agencies uh, and within, I guess, the agency landscape in general. Yeah. Is that how you would describe the early shock waves of that? Because obviously that that's a little bit cyclical. Uh, it is. Oh, yeah. I would say it's a little bit cyclical, uh, but it also is, uh, it's also a reflection of the times, I'd say. Uh, and I guess that's something I can talk about on the media side, on the actual media side of things, uh, what the media organizations are, are going through. Uh, and on that end, media is going through a lot of shit. You know, when you think about, you know, your Twitters and Facebooks, uh, but also on the more traditional broadcast end with NBC, ABC, Fox, CBS, those major broadcasters and the parent companies uh, or potential parent companies of them. Uh, obviously, Fox is, you know, in the middle of a tug of war between ABC and, uh, well, Disney and Comcast right now. And that's super fascinating uh, to watch because... It's really your, uh, it's a different kind of M&A battle. Uh, there's a, I'll kind of uh, step back a little bit and say that the past few weeks, I was at the media upfronts uh, covering a lot of what's going on with Fox, NBC, ABC, other networks like Turner, a lot of the digital uh, companies like Group 9, Studio 71, and I guess for the uninitiated, upfronts are, they're really big showcases of programming uh, throughout the year. And media companies and brands show up to say, hey, let's buy some ad space here. Let's do some really interesting collaborations with certain shows you have. So uh, example, Fox had its upfront last 
I want to say Tuesday or Wednesday, so the middle of last week, and they announced a slew of new ad buying uh, offerings, including uh, what they're calling jazz pods. So when you think about uh, the usual television structure, if it's a 30-minute show, you only really get 22 minutes of programming and eight minutes of ad time. If you're thinking about a 60-minute drama or uh, any sort of unscripted telecast, it's really in the 42 to 43-minute range. And then about 18, 17 to 18 minutes of commercials. So upfronts are for those minutes of commercial time in between actual programming. Um, yeah. and, and also for someone who's never been to one in New York, I've only been to one. And again, yeah. 20, 20 years in the industry, yeah. people in, in the strategy roles, unless you're in the media, unless you have money. Unless you're doing yeah. media strategy, you have money. Right. Negative idea. So what happens at these things? Because um, I mean, the one I was at was a big show and it was for some YouTube stars and the company that manages some of those big YouTube stars. Mm. What, what goes on? Uh, so... So right now we're in a phase where we have new fronts where the digital media companies are showcasing their offerings. So, you know, if you're talking about YouTube celebrities, a lot of times you'll see uh, those kinds of talents show up at what's called a new front. So Twitter's had one. Facebook technically has F8, which uh, is its conference, but also will probably turn into a way for them to showcase uh, new stuff for Facebook Watch and and their other live platforms. But then you have companies like Studio 71, uh, which is owned by ProSieben, ProSieben out in Germany. Uh, they are, they're an interesting media company where they work with YouTube celebrities like Lily Singh, The Rock, uh, those reaction video guys that everybody loves so much. And they say, hey, you know, this is all the cool content that we're going to have over, over the next year. They show previews of the stuff. They've showed actual brand collaborations uh, as kind of a way to, to show off all the cool and inventive stuff that they've done using, you know, in using advertising really. Mm -hmm. um, but also as a way to say, Hey, our talent's really interesting this is what you can do with us. And yeah. then afterwards, it's, it's a lot of mingling, uh, a lot of partying. There's usually some celebrity guests here and there to, to help, you know, foster the festivities along. Uh, and upfronts are kind of the same way. But when you think about uh, the history, like upfronts obviously came first. When you had Fox, ABC, NBC, CBS, Turner, Viacom, a lot of the major networks uh, for broadcast and linear TV said, you know what, we're going to have our annual meetings with brands, with media, um, with media agencies in May as a way to lead up to our fall, our fall block of primetime programming, which is usually outside of the Super Bowl, the largest draw for, for audiences. Everybody loves getting themselves ready for, for the new fall dramas and sitcoms and unscripted programming. So a lot of what goes on in the upfront presentation is, okay, this is what we have going on in, in the fall. You know, for Fox, for example, they have, they have two full days of football, of actual NFL football. So they added Thursday night football. They 
won out against uh, Amazon, Twitter, um, and a few others to, to own the rights for Thursday. So now they have Sunday football, they have Thursday football, and now three days of uh, basically two-hour primetime programming, mm-hmm. which is small compared to ABC, which has three hours, NBC three hours. Uh, and, isn't, isn't, yeah. football, isn't football viewership dropping in America? Football viewership is dropping in America, but viewership for everything is dropping in America. And that's, you know, that's really a testament to the impact that Netflix and Hulu has had. Uh, You know, customers are just saying, you know what, we don't need a cable box. I don't have time to watch live TV. So I'm just gonna, you know, I'm gonna either DVR it, watch it on some streaming platform, and just, you know, live my life uninterrupted. But yeah, I mean, football outside of you know, outside of people just being splintered amongst uh, different platforms and devices, it's it's gone down. I mean, part of it, I mean, I guess the NFL's own brand safety has come into question with a lot of the stuff with Colin Kaepernick, uh, a lot of the stuff around concussion protocols and, and injured players. Uh, and, you know, I think out of all the sports leagues in, in the U.S., football – has uh, I I almost worry about the sport itself. Um, there are players who are always going to be playing football and always want that, but it, it really does go down to you know how many eyeballs are you know really interested in seeing you know lots of giant men crash into each other uh, mm. in a, in a safe way, you mm. know. But also when you think about the undercurrent of social issues. Uh, that's also important. You know, players do need to to feel represented. They need to feel like they're, you know, they do have a right to, to speak up for the things that matter in the world. Uh, And, you know, as we continue to see this tension, including the developing uh, lawsuit that Colin Kaepernick has filed, uh, we're we're only going to see it get messier for, for the NFL. I don't yeah, know if it's and I don't know if it's really going to get much better. Yeah. We've also got changing demographics and uh, yeah. the rise of soccer. I mean, the MLS is getting better and better, and yes, great, great new teams popping up like Atlanta and Atlanta United, LAFC. Um, I've actually gotten to cover a few of the campaigns that uh, MLS did with its new agency partner, Cornerstone, uh, which is part of the Fader family. Uh, and I'm really impressed. I never really, I didn't care too much about MLS uh, at, you know, when I was younger. Uh, maybe because we did have, what, the New York, New Jersey Metro Stars for a while. Mm-hmm. And then the Red, that turned into the uh, Red Bull New York. And now, you know, I'm a big Yankee fan. And we have uh, NYCFC at Yankee Stadium. So, so that's pretty cool and really interesting. And it's nice seeing that one sport develop, especially as the rest of the world has already, already has this addiction to soccer. It's good to see on these domestic shores, you know, our own sports league start to mature and develop and, and gain a real loyal following. Yeah. And what do you see? I mean, I, I follow it a lot. And I think Atlanta United, where they've launched and I think sold out their season ticket holders in, in this incredible cauldron of a stadium. And I like, I love a lot of the new, the newer 
well, the, the, this new idea that you don't necessarily need to have a lot of the, the, the older guys come over from Europe, but a lot of the South American kids are seeing the US as a gateway to Europe. And yeah. in the past year or two, the, the clubs are backing this younger, and it's not, I don't mean to, because when you talk about age, it can sound mean, course, but there's yeah. like a, there's a lot, it's, it's great. It's been really energizing to see, but let's get back into the agency world <laughs> because I always get nervous when I talk about soccer that no one else in America cares, which is, not, <laughs> which is not true, but it is also why I find myself watching a lot of uh, Spanish speaking TV here. Mm. Uh, what, um, so we, we talked about uh, Martin Sorrell. So he's out of WPP. Mm. What, do you think, and obviously Can is coming up and you're preparing some stuff right. for Can. What is going, what do you think is on the mind of people at the most senior positions, in the most senior positions of holding agencies right now about what is going on? Uh, I personally think all eyes are, are on what decision that holding company makes. You know, who's, who's going to take over WPP and you know, what, it, what is that person gonna bring to the table? As Sir Martin has had this lasting impact, you know, I never met him personally, but, you know, for my colleagues at the drum and anybody who I know that's known him, you know, they've seen him as, as this lion that, you know, kind of just, I mean, not to make a can pun, but I mean, he just was that sort of a figure within the industry that people, people just listened to people respected a lot, even if they didn't agree with the way he went about things. Uh, so we'll see, you know, there's obviously been internal options being tossed around, uh, also external options, people from client side, um, and all in all, I don't know. I, uh, I kind of want to wait and see what happens just because it's just one of those things that I guess the industry couldn't really prepare for. Yeah. It was such an abrupt exit. And with the state of disruption, that really nice buzzword being, a, being such an issue for, for just about every industry, uh, you know, it's just one of those things that you, I wouldn't put any wager on anybody over the next few months. It's just, uh, just let the chaos play out and, you know, see who ends up uh, holding the throne to, what is it? Isn't WPP still the largest holding company in the world? So that's a, that's a good pair of keys to get. Yeah. You know? and what, what do you think it takes to, to be able to run a holding company? What personality traits do you need, for example? Um, I would expect you'd have to know a lot of languages, right? <laughs> if you're going to have that global reach, you have to know, uh, I mean, not just languages, but understanding the different markets. You know, the U.S. is a fairly saturated market in, in my estimation. Obviously, EMEA, Latin America, uh, Africa, South Asia. I mean, you know, there's lots of opportunities to, to grow brands, but also the infrastructure and cultures of those developing markets kind of has to, I guess, either improve or you know, brands just have to find really inventive ways to, to really stand out in those countries. Um, but, you know, understanding of those markets, you know, and how to make big gains in those markets, but also how to, you know, adapt each region to, to what's going on. So 
I mean, when you look at the Americas, for instance, uh, there's a lot of shifting of of resources from the really well-known global agencies to allow the domestic agent, more domestic regional agencies. Uh, Lowe's, for example, it was a BBDO client for a very long time. And then uh, they just left that partnership that they've had for years and decided, you know what, we're going to have three agencies across the country to do our work for us. We're not a multinational brand. We're, you know, we need agencies that can get those different audiences in the Americas of which there are plentiful, you know, and as the American population starts to, to round out and flesh out into this, uh, this multicultural spectrum that, um, that we know is going to develop, uh, you're going to see more of that happen. Um, but I mean, let's see. I mean, w within my six months, I probably told the stories of five or six agencies that have launched in the UK and deciding, you know what, we're going to come to the Americas because it's just right for opportunity. So, I mean, it's crazy seeing this one country with, you know, the New York market, Chicago, San Francisco, LA is de developing as a market. Uh, it, there's just so much that's up for grabs, which is really nice. Uh, but don't expect the larger holding companies to, to get much of that pie anymore. It's really going to go down to the indie shops. It's really going to go down to smaller holding companies that really understand and are very much centered around those audiences. Uh, and, you know, if the one or two or three originally like multicultural agencies like Spanish, you know, Spanish or African American marketing agencies decide, you know what, like we can branch out. Like we know this culture is developing into a culture that we understand better than, than traditional ad agencies, general market agencies, then, you know, we should start thinking about, you know, taking clients and adapting and hiring the right people to, to really address these new markets and new opportunities. Right. Yeah, I love up for grabs as a bit of a tagline for America because that's kind of like a key part of the mentality here. And it's, it's what brought people here and it's what brings people here, but it, it, that now also causes friction. Oh, yeah. But it's definitely, it, it is definitely a, a place of opportunity. It's not easy, you've got to, you've got to grind it out. Hey, what are some of the what are some of the conversations that people in agencies have with you that are off the record? Like, what are some of the themes and topics that they bring up over a beer or just in confidence? Diversity, <laughs> diversity is uh, is number one. I um, and I've been in the diversity space for almost as long as I've been a copywriter. So it's uh, it's been cool to like grow up. I mean, and do the whole college thing and you know, venture between agency and agency and get to know all these really cool older people that just know about the inner workings and know what it's like to be senior management or middle management and still face a glass ceiling. Uh, but I really think diversity is one of the big things, if not the biggest thing that, mm. that we talk about. Um, and I kind of hate the word diversity at this point. You know, I've sat on a few boards for trade organizations and, you know, it, it is a word that gets tossed around too much. Uh, inclusion is probably the, you know, we're kind of, 
I don't want to say we're off of diversity and having these conversations around diversity, but without inclusion, you know, all the, the black people, Asians, Hispanic, you know, anybody in the LGBTQ community, anybody with a, with a disability, you know, like visible or invisible disability, you know, if they don't feel that they are influencing the work in a positive way, uh, what you're going to continue seeing is people heading from agencies to tech companies, people heading from agencies to, to client side, um, especially when you think about creatives who have a tough way in, strategists who have an even tougher way in. Uh, I feel as if, and I've said this uh, to a lot of young friends on, on many occasions, that I, I genuinely think it's just harder to break in as, I mean, naturally as a strategist, because you're really the person with the insights. And, you know, how many brilliant people with bold insights can an agency hold? Um, so they get in, great. Like, if you get in an agency, great. Um, and then what happens once you're in the agency, right? You know, are your ideas, you know, being cultivated by the right people? Are creatives listening to you? Because creatives think, you know, they're coming out of portfolio school and thinking, oh yeah, you know, we've got the big ideas. That's what they train us to do. We, you know, we make it pop, we make it colorful, we make it amazing, but you kind of need strategists. You always need planners. You always need strategists to kind of rein you in and say, you know what, like, does this work for the audience? Uh, mm -hmm. Does this work for the platforms? Uh, are you messaging it the right way? Uh, you know, so I genuinely think that, you know, and I kind of touched on two different things here. I just realized um, one inclusion is a really big issue, but two, just under just having and finding a place uh agent work wise where the synergy between creative strategy account people or you know whatever that agency's method of operations is 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 a good synergy because mm. uh, you know we're still we're always going to see turnover we're always going to see people on fishbowl complaining about you know shit that agencies should really have handled by now, which right. is, you know, the basic, uh, you know, personal experience that anybody who chased a career in this industry should, should have, you know, are you, are you able to, I, I feel like when these topics come up that we mm -hmm. do go into vagaries, can you be more specific? What, what are people talking about without any, using any large words like, the D word. Yeah. Uh, personal experience. Like what's going on? How do you fix it? Why does it need fixing? Plain English. Okay, cool. Um, damn. And I, I tried hard to not grow up to be one of the people who just lives in platitudes and vagaries. <laughs> yeah, I'm going uh, to push you. You're a writer. You need to be, you like to be pushed. That's what I, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. It's just, I just think, you know, I have a pet hate of the word empowerment, important idea, sloppy word. What do you mean? You yeah. Empower, empower X in what particular way? I mean, like, what do we, what do we mean? What, what are the real conversations that are happening and that need to be heard? Uh, okay. So I always thought with the DNI, the diversity and inclusion issue, there were three major problems. One, the pipeline of talent. Uh, I've worked with a couple of 
the high schools that are actually built for advertising and marketing. These kids come out of the school with paid internship experience and, uh, you know, probably a better shot of getting into the industry than, you know, most people who have only studied it for two years because one, they're that good. And two, they're getting that sort of involvement from interested parties, whether it's agencies, whether it's brands, media companies, they want to be interested in these kids. Uh, so, you know, from my personal experience, I know now the pipeline is beginning at high school. It's not a college anymore, which I mean, still going to have is, that. Is that a good thing? Is that a good thing? Cause I, I have to admit, I think for 15 years, I didn't work with anyone who studied advertising. And, Man, and it's, it's the I, thing here. Yeah. I studied physics when I started college and eventually I started, I studied advertising. Uh, I, I think, think that it, sounds interesting. It is interesting. It is interesting. Uh, and I'll get back to that later, but okay. the high schools came out of necessity really because not enough people of color could get jobs. Not enough people of color knew that advertising was a thing. Remember, I was a physics major. I didn't know advertising was a thing. I was raised to get into a career in STEM, but I always loved to write. Uh, and it's perfect that I ended up in an industry where art and science kind of converge, which is great, but I also got lucky. It took a friend from high school to tell me, hey, you're a really great writer. Have you considered advertising? Uh, and that was one of the earliest conversations I, I had about it. And I still think about it to this day because when you tell people who care about culture, who care about changing behavior, uh, that there is a career path that exists for them where they can, you know, make the next breakthrough Jordan commercial or uh, change the way uh, people think about going to the pharmacy and, and buying goods, um, they gravitate towards it. They think it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, okay, so let's go back. So we were saying that the, one of the first things that people, one of the main things people are talking about is the pipeline. It's <laughs> the talent pipeline, yeah. The, the talent pipeline, that's been extended back into high school, but it also needs more communication of the idea of the career, that it's a yeah. thing, that it's a possibility. Okay, right. what else are some of the things that people are, are talking about? Uh, there is a gap. Uh, and so I, I used to play this game in gym in elementary school called Jump the River. You have these two mats and there was a gap between them. And if you were able to jump over the mat, good. If, you, if not, you were eliminated. That's what's going on with, our, with the talent once they get into these doors. They, there's very few people of color, very few women, you know, even now that we are seeing an influx of women in these senior leadership roles, executive roles, but there is a ground swelling of talent, either trying to get into agencies or actually in agencies. And that new talent coming in doesn't get much further than middle management. And then they start hitting ceilings. They start getting into roadblocks, whether it's cultural, whether it's, uh, just performance wise and there isn't anybody in that middle in that really golden middle to help them because most of those people who get to that middle they end up jumping ship so how are you going to bridge that gap agencies okay. agencies really do have to figure that out so I, 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 I hope you get what i'm saying right 
Yeah, totally, totally. So I, I think there's, there are crossroads that happen and one of the crossroads for all people is in that middle. With, with that middle is probably what, late, late 20s, early 30s? And the late, yeah. yeah. And, you know, I, I talk to people in all sorts of situations and I often hear people around that age saying, I don't want my boss's job, but I'm not sure what to do. Yeah. So what do, you, what do you see as being some of, you know, for the people who want to stay in the industry and progress, what needs to happen? Uh, you, you either tough it out. I hate saying tough it out because I'm the kind of person that, you know, is an advocate for, I wouldn't say hopping around, but finding the places and people that value you. Uh, and I think if, if there are those people who feel that they have enough, enough experience to, to jump to another place that will better value them, better pay them, uh, give them more of an opportunity to have a say, uh, then, then they should go for it. Uh, but it's also something that people need to be careful about. You know, mental health is, you know, is a rightful conversation that we all need to have because burnout is very, very much a thing within that, that group of people that you were talking about, you know, and even sooner, you know, I've got a, I've got a young 20 something friend at, you know, at a strategy collective who was just like burnt out all the time, but like he came from an ad agency where he was burnt out all the time. So it's like, you know, does, does he win out at all? Like, is he learning anything? Uh, and, and that's kind of frustrating. You know, you kind of want to have those, those champions who are able to teach you how to, to delegate, how to prioritize, how to not feel as if the world is on your shoulders. And I yeah. think less of an expectation to say, yeah, you need to get this work done, like ASAP, hit these deadlines, you know, and, you know, still walk to our office with a smile on your face every day. Mm -hmm. uh, you can't, it's, it's like one of those weird college conundrums where, uh, and I dealt with that in my early days, you either, you're either good at your grades, uh, you have a job or you have ex, you know, or you have extracurricular activities. You can have two, but you can't have three. Hmm. And I remember my first couple of years, I was doing all three full-time college student, full-time job. Uh, and I was, I was in Greek life. I was trying to join clubs and I got burnt out. That was my first ever burnt out, my first ever real burnout experience. Uh, and, and I hated it. And it's similar to, my early years in the industry where I was trying to be a great copywriter, trying to get myself on projects, but also realized, Hey, there are greater issues in the industry that I can align myself to, you know, and try to fix these problems. But I also want a social life, you know, yeah. Yeah. a lot of the, the younger uh, professionals in the industry are finding themselves aligning with, you know, diversity initiatives, with extracurricular industry activities, uh, and just really trying to continue pounding the pavement, even though they're already in, and they should be able to relax more. But oftentimes, it's because their work environment just isn't conducive enough for them to, to grow at the, plate, at the pace that they want. Right. Or, and, and I don't know if this is, I hear this a little bit in, in, I hear this a little bit. I don't know if it's because of the debates around postmodernism right now, but the question of like, what, what game are we playing right now? And in your, early in your career, one of the games that people play with you is 
what are your boundaries and are your boundaries really your boundaries or are they my boundaries? And I, that, that can take a long time. And that happens not just at work, but in relationships as well, mm-hmm. uh, where people try to encroach and, and dominate and, and people who tend to progress tend to be a little bit more domineering. So they're going to have that as a personality trait. And then it's just understanding what's, what's normal, right? That's, right. that's kind of the thing that we all, all grow up with uh, in, in some respect. Okay. So we've got, a need to increase the pipeline and then we have roadblocks kicking in. What are some of the other, and, and then mental health issues and burnout that come with all of right. this. What mm-hmm. are some of the other conversations that you're, you're having? Uh, hmm. I, it was a, it was a niche conversation years ago, but now it's, uh, it, it's showing up a little bit more and it's, uh, I'm trying to find the right way to phrase it. Hybrid roles. There we go. Hybrid roles. Uh, people are finding themselves to be so much more multidisciplinary than even t- even last year or two years ago. Uh, and that's also because of, I guess, necessity. Like they're not finding, you know, and a lot of times it's it's young talent who don't see the roles that they want in the world and decide I'm going to pick up these skill sets and this is my output and this is what I'm going to showcase to a job. And jobs most times will look at, you know, in more traditional places, right? They'll look at these really robust portfolios with like all these insights or all these campaigns made and they're like, oh my gosh, like how, what box do I put them in? Mm -hmm. And when you have such a rigid agency structure where copywriters, art directors, everything is so defined and we are now in a community of undefinable people with traits that we never even thought to pick up ourselves, but are very much necessary for the content we want to see in the future. What the hell do you do with them? You know, how the, like how the hell, how the hell do you expect them to find jobs, how, and it's, that burden should be, it shouldn't be on the people themselves trying to get the work, right? Like they're trying to be as viable a candidate as possible. How do agencies adapt? Agent, like, you know. Well, hang on, hang on. I don't even know if that's, I don't know if that's the question because I go back, I go a little bit back to the personality traits thing Mm -hmm. in that the, the, the person who's trying to fit you in a box. Right. That's how they think of the world. They are concrete, pragmatic thinkers. They mm-hmm. don't like ambiguity because in business, ambiguity is the risk. And all, most like small business books, like the E-Myth, for example, that's all about systemizing um, the way that you work so that it's repeatable and scalable and you as the boss, you fire yourself from jobs each year so that other people can take over and you delegate. And that's the background of all of this stuff. You don't go to business school necessarily to learn about uncertainty and ambiguity on a day-to-day basis. You, you want to minimize that. Right. But what you're saying, I, I, hear, I hear that so much. I, and I, I know I do talk a little bit about America versus Australia and England, but one of the most common quiet conversations I've had with Australians in all roles, account management, production, uh, strategy writing, is how they move to America. And they're like, back home, I did work that was really, really varied. Mm-hmm. Here... I, if I'm a producer, I'm the producer of like this really small widget and that's, and I'm not, I'm almost not allowed to have an opinion out, outside of that. Yeah. Uh, and that's, I think that's just the way that, you know, corporations do exist to 
I, I, talk, I, I like to think of the Mr. Potato Head, Mr. Mrs. Non-gendered Potato Head. Yeah. That you, st- you start, or within you, you have this like fully formed potato head. And then as you get older, pieces get taken off an arm and an eyebrow or whatever. And then you become ripe for a company. And right. then a company wants to keep you as like the, <laughs> the, the, the legless, armless, eyebrowless potato head. And it, it's really tough because there are a lot of people, for example, who write and want to do strategy. And I have, I've had conversations recently with people who do those things and they want to produce events for their agency, but it's hard for management. They don't know how to sell it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, they don't know how to sell it, but you know, there's also the, the efficiency, you know, when you, when you think about a person who can do all those three things, you know, how efficient will they be at their jobs? If their agencies decide, you know what, like we're going to, we're going to take a chance on you and say, yeah, you know, uh, you know, the, the smart places I do believe are the ones who do see a person with a ridiculous, a ridiculous amount of talent and say, you know what, let's try to find a way to have you not necessarily adapt for our system, but help us push our system further. Uh, mm-hmm. and because not a lot of that is happening at your tra- traditional places and, you know, just because clients aren't even asking for traditional work as much at any days. And and that's probably the crazy thing about it. Like clients should have an understanding now that your TV, radio, social, you know, whatever box you want to put your messaging in, that's not going to work anymore. It's almost like you kind of need those, that talent to really be outside the box, to really think integrated, to really start, you know, putting pieces together in ways that you couldn't do in your conveyor belt of, uh, of the previous system. And, you know, I hate thinking that that's probably the reason why we're seeing, uh, you know, your WPPs, Omnicoms and IPGs struggle in and decide, you know what, like we need to consolidate, but we cannot forget that Accenture and Deloitte are picking up steam and, a lot of it. Um, Infosys just acquired Wong Duty, and I think that's one of the craziest acquisitions to happen over the past few months. But it's also a telling sign of how serious you know we need to take what these mark these management consultancies are doing. What, what I hadn't heard of this story. What what happened, and why did Infosys buy that agency? Uh, Wong Duty is a is an agency out in the Pacific Northwest region. So I know they have an office in Seattle, which is their main office, and then one in Los Angeles. They're fairly well known, you know, great quirky indie shop on the West Coast. Infosys decided, you know what, we're gonna buy you guys. You guys are a really creative shop. You guys have a really strong vision. We do not want to fall behind what Deloitte and Accenture are doing. So we're going to buy you. That's great for Wong Duty because now they have a global reach. They have a company behind them that understands like management and how to retool businesses. And now you have, you know, you have kind of, I want to call them a low key. Uh, they're, they're really good mid-sized creative shop. And you're going to see more of that happen. You're going to see more uh, up and upstart agencies that are really quirky, very left of center. They're up for grabs now because, because of this deal, like there's a precedent set 
by this Wong Duty sale that I think uh, I, I, I'm excited to see more of, but also a little bit skeptical because, you know, the same skepticism that Sorrell had with, with Deloitte and Accenture, like, can they really do the same job that people who kind of are trained in marketing are doing? And it, it's worth seeing. Yeah. But clients, I think there's a need for it because with these consultancies, I mean, they're, they're handling internal issues. They're handling how uh, companies should, should work and align themselves for, for a marketplace, right? Yeah. Yeah. Ad agencies are very much more external. But when you think about all the shit that Pepsi went through with the, the Kendall Jenner shit that people still fucking talk about, uh, but also who, who's going through shit right now? Uber's going through shit. Uh, Netflix will probably go through shit at some point in time, but Netflix is fairly, it's holding fairly strong. Apple's going through issues right now. Uh, and these aren't necessarily advertising issues that are the problem. They're internal issues that are the problem. Totally. And ad agencies aren't properly equipped for that because they're looking for an external solution to provide to them in instead of saying, how do we rework like how your company thinks? Uh, and you know, that's why you're seeing, seeing this happen. I think it's one of the reasons why at least. What, what do you think are some of the challenges that any agency who's about to sell to a, a consulting company or has recently sold to a consulting company is going to face? I think it's like any indie artist that is getting picked up by a major label. Like, do you lose your soul in the process? You know? Uh, and it's, it's something that I'm, I'm wary of because I know there are friends who want to start their own things. I know, you know, it's a, uh, it's a bit of a pipe dream of mine to, to launch my own thing. And I'm like, do I want somebody else above me calling the shots? Uh, because, I mean, when you think about it, when you give up that much of, of your assets, you know, financial or otherwise, to, to a larger company, it literally, like, it either figuratively means they own you or they kind of just do outright. And, you know, I'm hoping that in the long duty situation and in any other situation that, that will come in the future, that they're looked, as par they're looked at as partners. Yeah. Um, uh, and you know, I think, you know, on the opposite of the long duty situation is project worldwide. I've been in contact with these guys over the past year or so. And it's an interesting concept, having a holding company where all your agencies are wholly owned. And I think that's kind of the utopia that I'd like to see in the future. You know, agencies that are able to do their own thing to handle their own profits and losses, but still have a company just in case to say, hey, we want to expand into new territory. We want to be able to take on these kinds of clients. How can you help us out? Like what kind of synergies can we have with other agencies? Um, so it, it's fascinating. And, you know, I've, I like that sort of model because it feels a little bit rebellious. Also feels like an oxymoron, like you're a holding company, but like, they, you know, these agencies are still very much independent and still act in the way uh, that, that they want to. Um, so it's interesting. You're seeing a lot of different models develop and, you know, 
brands are starting to do their thing. Facebook and Twitter and I guess the the content distributors are starting to to create their own things as well. And that's, you know, you know, we just can't take our eyes off of, off of the bigger picture here. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I think for talent that's having the struggles that we talked about previously, that's also a task for them to, to start, you know, casting a wider net and, and seeing what's out there. Cause mm-hmm. you know, Viacom and Turner are doing some interesting things with their in-house studios you'll probably see ABC and the rest of the traditional broadcasters start thinking, you know what, let's, let's try to do the same thing. Um, Like I said, brands are doing the same thing. It's really, it's a great time to be a freelancer if you have the experience, right? Because you can say, I can bring my skill set here. I can bring it there. But if you are young or approaching mid-level and you still feel like you have a lot to prove, it's still a bit of a risk. It's a risk that, um, you know, you either got to jump the river or just uh, kind of uh, retreat back until you are ready to make that leap. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think with, uh, con- well, with all the consolidations and acquisitions, whether it's management consulting or even in some more collective spirited situation like Project Worldwide, it's, it's all pretty primal. And, and the primal questions that people can violate are, who am I? Where do I fit in? how do I do work that is meaningful and important to me? And how do I do it with people that mostly respect me? And the way to violate those kinds of questions, if you're acquiring an agency is to treat the agency as unimportant as an internal service provider and consultancies are going to run that risk because they're very alpha type A PNL who's making the money and then get those words and pictures, people to give me some stuff. That's one of the risks. It's not everywhere. Definitely not everywhere, but it's a thing, definitely a thing and definitely a thing in the larger cities. Uh, And, you know, I've seen different types of agencies try to bring in new cultures. You know, I've I've been in in companies that had say three or four key disciplines that within two years that blew out to seven or eight, still relatively small. And you now have seven or eight subcultures because you've got a company culture, but you've got seven or eight subcultures on a project. And it's good if it's run properly and orchestrated well. And I do think there's an opportunity for a role, which is like a a chief orchestrator of project who has intellectual skin in the game and respect and can help people achieve what they need to achieve. And that's not, I haven't seen that in many agencies, but you know, a a lot of this stuff just comes down to identity and people search for meaning and these acquisitions always try to kind of, they seem to often not respect that or understand that that's what's at play, especially with people who are creative for a living. I agree 200% with that. Uh, I mean, it, it's fine. Like, I think we can all understand that no two agencies are the same and will be structured the same. But at the same time, purpose is, purpose is a really big deal. I remember going through a, a hard time in, you know, which kind of led to me transitioning out of the industry, I mean, well, out of the agency world uh, where I was just, you know, one very, I'm naturally somebody who's tough on myself because I'm a competitor. I really am. You know, when you talk about primal instincts and stuff, I want to win. I I really do care about uh, uh, delivering at a, you know, at a really, really uh, high level, but I'm a collaborative person. Like I love teamwork and you know i was in a situation where i didn't have a partner 
didn't have a creative director above me to, to really teach me anything. And a lot of times it was fending for myself until I just got tired of it. Uh, and I'm just like, you know, and I'm sure there are so many people who will probably listen to us and, and say like, yeah, I, I feel that at my job. Um, do, you think know, is, do you think that's a symptom of the job or could that just be who you are? Because, you know, I've read research about, for example, how people try to convince other people about things in a business setting. And there are people who do informal, just quick chats. And there are people who like to do the, to, to do the big presentation in front of groups. I know that I prefer to take drawings to people, talk to them about stuff on a desk because in a larger group setting, my introversion does get triggered a little bit. Yeah. So is, do you think that's just you or, or do you think it was a, a symptom of the job? Or the, or the it, was, uh, it was my unique situation. Uh, I needed to pull back and kind of figure out what was going on on my end. And I, there definitely were things on my end. Uh, you know, and I had to figure out the kind of person I am. You know, you know, how I, you know, how I work and how I operate. And even when I did figure out, okay, I'm a person who, who loves working on projects with meaning. Like I cannot be this copywriter who is solely focused on, you know, making brands a shit ton of money if they're not really doing anything for their consumers and not in a CSR type way, not in a let's get all the colorful people on these ads way, but like actually having impact on the societies that they touch. Um, you know, so I kind of figure out the kind of person and kind of creative I wanted to be in the kind, kind of way I wanted to operate about things. But at the end of the day, I was still working in a situation that was not conducive for my growth. You know, when you don't have an art director as a copywriter or vice versa, how the hell are you going to get work? You know, yeah. like yeah. if you don't really have a creative director above you, how are you supposed to know whether you're actually doing the work right? You know, uh, and, that, and that was frustrating. And it was kind of one of the things that I had to address once I moved into this role at the drum where my team is five hours away, my boss is, my direct supervisor is five hours away. It's a completely different culture. It is a completely different industry for me. I've never written, like I've never considered journalism. It just, you know, uh, an old friend who I used to blog with for uh, Advertising Week years ago, he was working there and now he's gonna be joining Ad Week in two weeks, Doug Zanger. Uh, but he reached out to me and said, hey, let's work together, let's, uh, let's do this. Uh, mm -hmm. So, that, that's what brought me over, knowing that I was in a dead-end situation at a company that I know I loved and I know that, you know, gave me a chance when a lot of agencies wouldn't. But uh, when it went down to it, it was like, you know what, there's an opportunity here to build. There's an opportunity with a, uh, a place and people who really do care about these industries, marketing and media. And, you know, their mantra is marketing can change the world. And I'm like, I, I want to change the world. That's great. Let me, you know, let me put my hat in the ring and say, you know, and start giving my own ideas and giving my, my industry expertise. Uh, and it's, it's been a crazy six months. It, yeah. it, it just, it just has, uh, you know, just 
getting getting my mindset from one where I'm selling to one where I'm objectively telling and, you know, giving my industry expertise in a way that uh, my colleagues who are mostly trained journalists uh, don't really have that sort of insight to. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's been fun, a challenge and all that. Yeah. And, and you're preparing some material for the can festival of Canline festival of creativity mm-hmm. which uh, i'm assuming most people would know what that is but it has traditionally been the the spot on the calendar where everyone goes and has fun in can and picks up awards and that yeah. definitely can change careers what do you think possibly based on this discussion or just in general what are a couple of topics that you think can the can festival could put on show that you think they might avoid this year um damn and i've never been to can so like i might say things that they might have already done but um hmm. it, it's interesting because one of the key players who usually shows up at can and isn't this year is Pulisus because of the ai system that they put in place called, called marcel uh, so they unveiled it yesterday uh, my boss got to see that, and you know, uh, I guess it's 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 weird because it is an international festival of creativity, um, but it is also such a huge cash grab. Uh, one, it's such a huge cash grab. Two, it's uh, and no state on can, but you know, award shows got to make money, uh, but. Yeah, I mean, the way we're thinking about creativity nowadays is, I don't know. That, that's, a really tough, that's a really tough and good question. Uh, I mean, I Let's guess... You, I can give you another framework. If, if you were putting your own event on in New York around that time, what are a couple of the topics that you would ensure were headline topics? Cool. Uh, that, that's a great question. I think I can answer that. Uh, I think it, it does touch on a couple of things that, that we talked about. So purpose, you know, and defining purpose outside of QSR and DNI. Uh, I think that's the really good conversation for, for brands to take part in. Uh, when you think about some of the, the work that's come out lately, uh, Axe has had some really good work that challenges masculinity, for example. And I think, you know, when you think about purpose, you're not just thinking about the environment and saving trees, but also changing a lot of the, the toxic constructs that have impeded us as a people. Uh, so I do think purpose, you know, elevating brand sense of purpose within the culture should be one. You know, Dove has done that really well with body image. Uh, Axe is trying to do that now with masculinity. Uh, there's, there's definitely a space for a very many brands to get into conversations. It's not a conversation every brand should, should get into, and for good reason. Um, unless ExxonMobil says, hey, you know, we're going to start converting from, from oil and gas to, to solar and, uh, you know, and wind, ener- and wind energy, you know, it, they're just not a brand that you can start seeing in these conversations. But, like, what is it going to take for a brand like that to start saying, you know what, like, Let's stop thinking, you know, we have all this money already. Let's start thinking about how to be viable in the future. Um, you know, global warming is a real thing. You know, uh, race relations is a big thing. Poverty is a real thing. 
how can brands start saying, you know, let's, let's do this and be good at it. Because uh, the moment consumers see that brands are doing something great and ethical and evolutionary that is kind of a little bit outside of their character, but also showing a lot of character growth, yeah. I think they'll gravitate to them. <clears throat> yeah, I do. And I, I think there's, I know there's a lot of debate around the, the word purpose and, mm-hmm. and whatnot. And I think it's also worth pointing out, and I'm happy to I bang on about this a lot, that purpose does not have to be noble because street gangs have a purpose. But I think the problem is the word brand. It's not brand purpose, it's business purpose. It has to right. exist at the heart of the business. It can't be a department and it can't be one department's responsibility. It, it, sh- it really should not completely be. Completely missing the point. Yeah. Um, the second topic is, is kind of near and dear to me. It, and it is, it is diversity and inclusion because a lot of times, you know, and I've, I've seen it in my own experience and in the greater industry uh, conversation that the people who are in charge of diversity and inclusion and making these spaces more representative of the, the cultures we see outside I don't really think they get to do much outside of put together some like cultural event for, for women's history month or black history month. And, you know, let's not forget St. Patrick's day, you know, like they're, they're doing cute things, but nothing of substance. Mm, I like the word cute. I like the word cute. If you gave this panel or session a name and had to use the word cute and you couldn't use diversity and inclusion and large words like that. How, what would you title this panel? I'm going to totally put you on the spot and I'll say a few more words just to give you a little bit more time. Okay. And, and another word and another word. What would you call, what would you call this panel? Um, like cute as a pro- provocation. Progress isn't cute. I, I think, I think that's what I'll title it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it Cause it, it is progress. I mean, these, individuals are given these chief titles and these executive titles, uh, but not much execution. And it literally looks cute to people who want to join these agencies and say, oh, there's, there's somebody who looks like me who's in charge of this. But what do you do? <laughs> what do you do? How have you helped the agency? How have you helped clients? Uh, how have you helped culture? Uh, you know. All, all these things, uh, it, it's, it's weird to me. And like, I've, got, I've gone to Ad Color. I've gone to many of the top diversity and inclusion conferences out there. And, you know, my, my own boss at, uh, at my last agency, you know, I know he went through struggles uh, to get a lot of more wide-ranging, impactful work done that doesn't just look good for for what he's doing but actually has business results tied to it Mm -hmm. uh and i know a lot of other people are going a lot of other diversity representatives are going through the same thing and it really goes down to what you know what agencies can do better to better utilize these people yeah you know, uh, yeah, I, I think I think that because the challenge, especially in New York, is that yeah. there's a lot of a stab, there's a lot of vested interest here. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's a high it's a high stakes 
city, it's a high stakes industry. You win a client, you're hiring a hundred people, 200 people, you're losing a client, you lose a client, you're losing those people. Yeah. And I just think some of these topics, they need more underground activism and it's happening in different ways and in different places, but then often more of an establishment organization or behavior comes in and tries to own them, which was yeah. some of the criticism around some of it around Time's Up, and that's absolutely not to dismiss the importance of that movement overall. And I, I think it's the same with some of these topics that we're discussing. It has to happen more at a street level. And uh, again, what's the game we're playing? Because if, yeah. if the game is there's an issue that people seem to be to care about and the establishment will create a department for it, that's not a good game to be playing. <laughs> no, no, it's not. And you're going to have a situation like... Uh, probably 10 years ago when there was a, a class action filed against, against the industry uh, because there weren't enough people of color getting hired. And that resulted in a very large push by these agencies to, to bring in somebody that is focused on diversity and inclusion. And those, you know, the, the strength and I guess prestige of that role just dwindled over time to a point where you're just like, Oh, like, cool there's somebody but you know they just there are token you know yeah. there are there are representative uh and you're right like underground organizations uh diet madison avenue obviously has been that was my main coverage for maybe half of my time here so far and i've only been here six months so uh mm. i think we need more underground stuff like what dma is doing but we should have more establishment stuff like Time's Up uh, advertising. Uh, the one thing that really struck me as as frustrating about it was there was a, there have been a lot of freelance creatives and creatives who don't work inside agencies who weren't invited to these conversations or got pushed off a list because, oh, you don't work for an agency. So, you know, we'd rather have agency people first because prob they're probably better equipped to have these conversations but when you think about you know it, it kind of just goes back to earlier conversations right you have a groundswell of talent that wants to that wants to move forward but they're probably relegated to freelance roles because agencies can't you know feel that they can't afford to have them full-time or they just hop around from place to place and a lot of those people especially women have found themselves in vulnerable situations because it's like some shit happens to them. They can't really, I mean, they can't really report it. They're not on a full-time salary. They don't get full-time benefits. They, they just don't benefit at all. Uh, so it was frustrating hearing a lot of those conversations happening, heartening to see diet Madison Avenue step up and say, you know what? Like we can't stand for this. Like the, you know, these are our people. We need to find ways to, to include them because we're entering such a strong freelance market that their opinions are going to be more valuable than those at, those at the agencies. Mm -hmm. They're going to be the ones creating great work and maybe not getting credited for them because they're not working in the right place. Hold on one second. Dan? Yeah, I'll be right back. I mean, what, what you, the phrase up for grabs, I think, has stuck with me throughout this thing because I really do believe the American dream is that if you come to this country or you, if you, you have lived in this country your whole life, multi-generational, 
The American dream is this idea that you get to and have to exert yourself at this country or it will exert itself at you and try yeah. to dominate you, right? And, and in a broader, more amazing and crazy and interesting way than any other country. Totally believe that. And so all of these topics that we're talking about, they are totally up for grabs. And as long as it, I hope that people operate from a place of compassion, you do have to realize that you're going to be in companies that survive through the opposite of compassion because companies have to not be compassionate. They are robotic entities that have to survive beyond you and almost in spite of you and just take what they need. What, you know, I, I think with this uh, possible event, and by the way, if you want to do this event, I, I like the, the two topics. Let's, let's do it. Mm -hmm. I'll say it too. So we've got progress is cute and we've got, uh, progress isn't cute and we have uh, what was the first one again uh the first one is elevating purpose past uh uh, uh yeah. csr yeah purpose is your business progress isn't cute yeah. uh what what event would you do for yourself in that lone wolf copywriter position what's the event title for that uh emerge i uh i i've been kind of tossing these conversations around but uh i think we need to, we do need to discuss the stuff that is bubbling up from the, from the underground, from, from the surface and, and, and highlight them and see how we as an industry, brand side, agency side, um, how we can all find ways to collectively be more humane, be more compassionate and, you know, in a, in a way that still does deliver business results because I think it's possible. I truly think it's possible. Are you able to write about these topics for the drum? Because I do find, and I know it's UK based yeah. and UK, look, UK journalism is kind of, it can be more savage. It can be yeah. more, more snarky. It can be snarkier and more savage. Uh, and I do find a lot of what I read in America, a little bit cheerleading and, and, you know, it's totally, it's totally that. It's <laughs> That's totally why I couldn't work at any other magazine. I could not work at any other magazine because everybody was cheerleading. This is yeah. why I joined the drum. Well, they, it's because they're writing about the people who pay them. So you have to, don't you? So are yeah. you able to write about these topics with the drum or is that also? When I get the time to, <laughs> it's, it's a matter of time. It's, it's a matter of time. Uh, my coverage is, is so wide ranging and far reaching that, you know, the moment I take a break from, from media coverage, it's back into agency coverage. Uh, it's in my, it's in my scope of responsibilities, you know, they, with, the, with the main word being the word coverage. So you, you are covering what yeah. is happening yeah. as opposed to necessarily suggesting what could happen. Um, it's, it, I do have, I'm trying to say I do have the ability to talk about what could happen. And in my opinion, what should happen in, in these industries, but it is a matter of having the time to do that. There's mm. so much going on. We're, we're growing as an organization and we will hopefully in the next few months bring on some more people in editorial so that, you know, everybody, it's what, four of us now in, in the U.S., you know, one person covering brands, one person covering creativity, one person covering like the nitty gritty digital side of things. And then there's me covering, covering everything else. Uh, so once we kind of lighten the burden for, for the four of us, uh, it should be easier for me to 
to talk on these things in, in a concise manner. Cause I definitely want to do it. You know, I definitely think that it's part of the reason why I wanted to, to join because I know I have a voice. I've been part of so much. I've, I've done quite a bit in, in five years. Uh, and I know that people are looking for that. I do know people are looking for that. So, you know, even if it's not me saying that, it's really scoping out and finding those people who are willing to give their opinions and say, hey, like, write up a few hundred words and, and let's talk and, and let's get these solid opinions out there for, for people to, to sink their teeth into. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's definitely a yearning for real talk right now. However, there's also, it can cost people something. And so to even have an opinion about this, if you're working for, especially for a large company, there's yeah. a huge risk associated with that. And I, I just hope that these kinds of conversations that we're having show people that it's, it's a pretty normal thing to talk about. These don't have to be taboo topics, off-limit topics. Have these conversations, put them out in, into the world and, and good things will hopefully come for, for more people. Bennett D. Bennett, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, everybody can find me at The Acecapade. So it's T-H-E-A-C-E-C-A-P-A-D-E. Uh, it's fairly straightforward. You could also just find me by my name, Bennett, Bennett D. Bennett or Bennett Bennett. And my host of social platforms uh, will show up on Google. So hopefully you don't have a hard time finding me. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us on Sweathead today. Best wishes with everything. And, and may you turn that coverage into some world, truly world changing platform with the drum. Best wishes with it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Peace.